Isaiah chapter 9 is the portion we turn to for the scripture reading this evening. And we read verses 2 through 7 from Isaiah chapter 9. After speaking a word of warning and giving a description of the misery of Judah in their sin, here now is a description of the joy and the the goodness that God will provide for them. Isaiah 9, beginning at verse 2. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation, and I would remove the word not and and instead understand of it, and increase the joy of it. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, and rod, the rod of his oppressor, as in the days of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise, and garments rolled in blood. But this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. That is, the, the equipment for, for warfare shall become a burning and fuel for the fire. Verse 6, and now the words of the text, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So far we read God's holy and infallible word. We're looking at those names in verse 6. And tonight we look at those two names, the mighty God, the everlasting Father found in verse 6. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, by way of introduction, I want to point out to you the order or the structure in these names that are given in verse 6. Because there is a kind of order to these names. First, there is the name Wonderful. And as we saw last week, that name Wonderful is emphasizing that Jesus is the wonder of wonders. He himself is the great wonder of God. Because he's God come in the flesh. And as one commentary I read this past week put it so nicely, quote, The position of this word as the first word in the series is striking. His name shall be called Wonder, 
We are brought head on, as it were, with God himself as we hear the names of the child. It is our first encounter with him. All the following designations are influenced by or stand under the shadow of this first majestic name. This child who is born for us is wonder. End quote. That's from E.J. Young and his commentary. Right away at the beginning of these names, we come face to face with the reality that this child that is born unto us, this son that is given, is the incarnate one, God in the flesh, Emmanuel. By the way, I didn't say this last time, but that emphasis on who this child is as the incarnate one can already be seen at the very beginning of verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Notice even with that language itself, unto us a child is born. That's emphasizing his humanity. He is one who is born just like we are. He is, he is fully human. But then notice, unto us a son is given. And what that is emphasizing is the divine origins of this child. This child is no ordinary child, but this child is a son given by God himself. Truly, this son, this child, is God's own child given to us. He's born the Son of Man, and He's born the Son of God. He is wonderful. Second, there's the name Counselor. And as we saw last week, that name Counselor is emphasizing that this child, who will have the responsibility to rule as king, the government shall be upon his shoulders, this child is one who is given, who has all wisdom and knowledge and insight. He is a king who's going to rule with perfect competency. Think, we said last week, think of King Solomon and how he needed wisdom to rule the people well, to be their counselor, to be their king, to be their guide. Well, that's how Solomon was a type of this king who is counselor. This is his name. He's not just one who is given wisdom. He is wisdom. Wisdom and competency are part of his very being and character. Well, those were the two names we looked at last week, and now we come to the next two names, and we can begin to see now how these names are all different, and yet they fit together. Third, we have the name, the mighty God. And what that name is simply emphasizing is that this king who has wisdom, who has competency and knowledge to rule well, also has the power and the strength to rule. He's the mighty God. He is able to do what needs to be done. He is able to meet all the needs of his people. And then fourth, we have the name Everlasting Father. And what that name is emphasizing is that this son who is given, also has the heart. He has the compassion and love to rule his people well. He has the wisdom. He's counselor. He has the might. He's mighty God. And he has the heart to rule his people in the most perfect way. And then finally, there's that name, the Prince of Peace. And we'll look at that name tomorrow morning as we celebrate Christmas. That's really the climax of all these names. So this afternoon, we look at those two names, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. That's the theme this evening. We look at three things. First, the Mighty God. Second, the Everlasting Father. And then third, given to us. So first, the name, 
the mighty God. In the Hebrew of the Old Testament, the name here is this, El Gibor. Now, we know some of the Hebrew names given to God or that God gives himself. For example, we know the name Jehovah. That's a Hebrew name. We know the name Emmanuel, God with us. Maybe some of us know the name El Shaddai, God Almighty, or even the word Messiah, Anointed One. Well, here the name in Isaiah 9 verse 6 is the name El Gibor. And it's made up of two words, El, which means God. And in the book of Isaiah, that word is only used in reference to Jehovah God, El, and then the word Gibor, which means mighty. And when you put these two words together, El Gibor, you have a name that is only ever given to God. This is a name unique to God. God is the mighty one. And yet what's striking is that here in the text, this is the name given to this child. So clearly this passage, even in that fact, is teaching us that Jesus is God. He is the mighty God. Well, we already emphasized last week that this child being spoken of here is the incarnate Son of God. He's God come in the flesh. So I don't want to emphasize too much tonight that He is God, that He is El. So let's focus in on that word Gibor, El Gibor. He is the mighty God. Now, that word mighty is a word that is sometimes translated in other versions as the word warrior or champion or hero. For example, it's this same word that is used to describe Judge Gideon or Judge Jephthah, who are referred to in the Bible as mighty men of valor. These are men whom God raised up to be deliverers who were mighty and and competent in warfare. And they brought deliverance and salvation to God's people in the midst of dark distresses. Interestingly, this word, Gabor, is also used to describe warriors who are very arrogant. Right? Men of war who maybe puff out the chest and talk proudly. Now, that's not the case with Jesus. But my point with saying that is that This word is emphasizing someone who is very mighty. He knows he has great power. He's a champion. He's a warrior. He's a hero. Think of the great men in David's army, right? The mighty men of David. The 33 or so men that David had. Mighty men. Think of an athlete. A mighty man who is ready to run his race. He's powerful. Ready to gain the victory. That's the name used here. Now, before we apply all of this to Isaiah 9, verse 6, and this child, let's see that that's who God himself is. God himself is pictured as just this kind of a person. He is a mighty man of valor. Think of Psalm 24, verse 8. I just have to pick a few examples here. Psalm 24, verse 8, which is actually a reference to Jesus as well, in his ascension into heaven, but it's also a reference to God. Psalm 24, verse 8, Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Mighty in warfare. That's the idea. Listen to these words from Jeremiah 32, verses 17 through 19. Ah, Lord God, 
Behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. Thou showest loving kindness unto thousands and recompensest the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name. Great in counsel and mighty in work. For thine eyes are open upon all the ways of, thy, of the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. There you get an idea of who God is as the mighty God. He does what he pleases. He executes justice perfectly. He is a warrior. He is a champion. Or think of Psalm 2. We're going to sing Psalm 2 Tomorrow, Lord willing, Psalm 2 doesn't use the word mighty per se, but the idea of this word is captured very powerfully in Psalm 2. Let me just read a few verses here. Why do the people rage? Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh at them. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. That's how God will respond to those wicked plotters. And a little later we read, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's the meaning of this word mighty. The mighty God. But now that word that is used to describe God is, is now here in this text used to describe Jesus. That's His name. That Son given to us. The child that is born is the mighty God. He is the great warrior. He is the great champion. The mighty man of valor. Jesus is the great hero. That's what the text is saying. And now if you look at other Old Testament passages, you'll see that this is a very familiar picture of who Jesus is. We sang it from Psalm 45. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. That's Jesus, the mighty man of valor. Psalm 89, verse 19, we read, Then thou spakest in vision to thy holy one, we sang this too, and saidst, I have laid help upon one that is mighty. I have exalted one chosen out of the people. And then the passage goes on to say, and I will beat down his foes before his face and plague them that hate him. He's the mighty warrior. And to include just one more passage, I, I cannot refrain from including Isaiah 63 in these passages. 
Who is this that cometh from Basra, uh, from Edom, with dyed garments from Basra? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Who is this? I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel? And thy garments like him that treads in the winepress, in the wine fat. Answer, I have trod in the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment, all my clothing. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. You see, that's the idea of this title. The mighty God. You might say, He is the victorious warrior. He is the proven hero. He is the king of His people who is mighty to save. And now the point is, beloved, that's the child who is born unto us in this Christmas season. That's the son who is given, who is laying there in swaddling clothes in the manger on the outskirts of Bethlehem. That little baby Jesus is the mighty God, the champion of his people. This is who Jesus is, beloved. And now now we could go through Jesus' whole life and we could point out how Jesus showed his power in many different ways. All his mighty miracles, right? All his preaching, never man spake as this man. And in all his ways, we could see his power. But let's get to the point and let's ask what especially reveals who Jesus is as the mighty God. And what especially reveals who he is as the mighty God is this, that he is able to meet the demands of a broken law. And he is able to make the satisfaction for all our sins. And he is able in so doing to conquer and to crush all his and our enemies. That's who Jesus is as the mighty God. And we've seen this a little bit in recent sermons in the catechism preaching. Let me just remind you of that. Remember Lord's Days 5 and 6. Why does our mediator need to be fully God? Well, because he needs to be so mighty, so mighty that he, by the power of his Godhead, can sustain in his human nature the burden of God's wrath. So that he might also obtain for and then also restore to us righteousness and life. That shows us his power. He is able to meet the demands of a broken law. He's able to make the payment and make satisfaction of God's justice. Only one who is fully God can do that. And not only that, but in doing that, he also conquers all his and our enemies. Think of our mortal enemy, the devil. Think of how powerful he is. He is a mighty lion, a mighty beast. But what does the book of Hebrews tell us? Chapter 2. It tells us that Jesus is the mighty one who has destroyed the devil. 
For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. He destroyed the devil. Colossians 2, verse 15, puts it this way. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly. He made an open show of them, triumphing over them in it. That's your mighty champion, beloved, who destroys the devil. Think of our mortal enemy's sin. Think of how sin is a power that rules and dominates and enslaves a person. Think of the mortal enemy, death. And yet what does the apostle write in 1 Corinthians 15? O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the mighty one. And what else will he do? Well, as the king of glory, as the righteous king of his people, Jesus will also ride forth to avenge all wrongs done to his people. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. Give place to wrath. Step aside and let Jesus have his wrath. That's what it means. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord, says the king. As the king of glory, he will bring victory to his people. He will rise up against all his and our enemies. He will make an open show of them. Indeed, already now, sitting on the throne, he's the king of kings and lord of lords. Ruling over all, doing his will and good pleasure. And beloved, there's also coming a day when he will mount his white horse. His white horse, which is called Faithful and True. And he will ride forth with his army, his, his great and terrible army of angels. And he will crush his enemies with a rod of iron. And he will usher in the new heavens and the new earth where this mighty God will dwell with his people in perfect peace forever and ever. That's the name, mighty God. Beloved, think about it. What a word of comfort for the saints in Isaiah's day who were pining under the wicked and weak rule of wicked King Ahaz. How God's people in this day must have been encouraged and how, how they must have lived their lives with their eyes fixed ahead, looking ahead in faith, waiting, waiting for the coming day of salvation when the king would be born. Well, what a comfort for us as well. Indeed, a great comfort for us. Because not only are we looking ahead to that final victory, but already now, today, we know that the king has come. The mighty God has already gotten the victory. His resurrection from the dead is his declaration of victory. Even before he died, he could cry out his triumphant victory. It is finished. 
What a comfort for us as perhaps we today pine under earthly rulers that are wicked or that are weak. What a comfort for us as we day by day are fighting the battle against our own sins and our own sinful nature and we are weary in the battle. What a, what a comfort for us in the midst of all our circumstances. Beloved, in the midst of your struggles and your difficulties and your challenges, remember, you belong to a king who is a mighty God, the mighty God. And maybe the, the young catechism students will now remember what God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. The catechism students remember God told Abraham that he was going to have a son. And Sarah was listening in, and Sarah laughed within herself as if, as if it would be too wonderful for her to have a child in her old age. And catechism students remember what God said to Abraham? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And the answer, of course, is no, nothing. It's too hard for the Lord. Now that doesn't mean that God gives us everything we want or ask for, but it does mean in all our circumstances of life, in all our struggles and sorrows, we are already more than conquerors. Because we've got a king sitting on the throne who is our elder brother, flesh of our flesh, bone of our bone, and he is the mighty God, El Gabor. And he, beloved, he is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask him or even that we can imagine. And also living out of him, having him in us, sitting on the throne of our hearts, we can say what the apostle said in Philippians 4. I am able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because I'm living out of his strength. And he is the mighty one. My king knows how to lead me. He's a wonderful counselor. He's got the wisdom. And now in this next name, I also see that he has the power to get everything done that needs to get done. He is the mighty God. Now, beloved, seeing how great of a warrior and champion this child is who is given to us, we move on to the next name in the text, and we see that this very same child, who is the mighty God, is also at the same time the everlasting Father. And that's the most glorious name, too, emphasizing more, something even new and different about who this child is. He's the everlasting Father. Now, when you first read that name, that might be a head-scratcher. This son, who is given to us of God the Father, is himself the everlasting Father? How does that work? Well, there are two things we need to say. First, just as with the other names that we've already looked at, what this name is simply emphasizing, on the one hand, is that Jesus is God. It's not making a confusion here between God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, and God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. The passage here is not telling us that the second person of the Trinity is the first person of the Trinity. That's not what it's saying. What it's simply saying is that Jesus Christ, according to his being, his divine being, 
He is one with the Father and the Spirit. This Son that is given, this child that is born, is God. As part of the Trinity, He is the Eternal Father. According to His person, He is the second person of the Trinity, who is begotten of the first person of the Trinity. But the fact is, according to His being, His divine being, He is fully God. And as fully God, He is, as I just said, with the Father and with the, and with the Spirit, He is the everlasting Father. Just for one more explanation, think about this. When we pray, our Father who art in heaven, remember, we're not just praying to the first person of the Trinity, but we're praying to the triune God as our heavenly Father. The triune God is Father. And the second person of the Trinity, inasmuch as He subsists in the divine nature, also partakes of that name, Father. Inasmuch as He is God, He is the everlasting Father. That's the first thing we can say. But the second thing we can say is this. What the name is emphasizing is that this Son, who is given to us at Christmas time, has the disposition of a Father towards us. Meaning, He is one who is compassionate, who pities His people, who loves His people, who goes to work to provide for His people's needs. As a father pities his children, so Jesus, the King, pities and loves his people. That's the idea. Now, for me personally, I guess I'm inclined to think of Jesus more as my elder brother, right? That idea, too, is common in the Scriptures. Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren. God will call him my firstborn. Right? And we are also the children of God by adoption. We are his brothers and sisters. Wherefore, in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. But Scripture does indicate that Jesus also relates to his people as a father. For example, maybe you remember that woman with the issue of blood for 12 years. And you remember how Jesus addressed her. Right? Jesus feels someone in the crowd touching him and, and virtue goes out from him. And he says, who touched me? And he turns around and he looks at this woman. And the woman falls down before him and tells her everything. And how does Jesus speak to her? Jesus says, daughter, daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. He relates to his people as a father. In John 13, verse 33, Jesus addresses his disciples as little children. That, that's the language of a father figure. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. And in Isaiah 53, verse 10, you have a very explicit passage where believers are referred to as the seed of Jesus. And all this makes sense. Because Jesus is the one who gives us life. He is the one who begets us, who regenerates us, so that we're born again by his word and spirit. Right? Just as young Pastor Timothy was Paul's son in the faith, so in a certain sense we are Jesus' children in the faith. But the main point is this. This son who is given us, who is referred to here in Isaiah 9, who has the responsibility of the, shoulder, of the government upon his shoulders, he will rule his people, he will direct us 
as a father rules his children. Meaning, in perfect love and compassion and pity. Or again, think of a king, a good king, who lives not for himself, but who lives focused on the souls of his people. In a sense, a king is a father figure. He's jealous over the citizens, the children of his kingdom. He's protective over them. He wants to provide for them the best that he can give them. And you see, that's the character, that's the disposition of this child in the text towards his people. And what adds to the comfort of this name is this. This child, who is a king, who has this fatherly affection towards us, will have this fatherly affection towards us forever. For his name is the everlasting Father. And again, that word everlasting could be understood in two different ways. First, it could be emphasizing Jesus' deity so that it would be understood this way. He is the eternal Father. He is the eternal God. Some even understand the words this way, that he is the Father of eternity. And that's a possibility. There's truths to uncover when you take that approach. But it would seem better to understand the word to be emphasizing that his disposition towards his people, his posture towards us as citizens of his kingdom will always be the posture and disposition of a father. He will always have a fatherly pity towards us. Always he will have a paternal love and compassion for his people. He's always going to be jealous over his people. He's always going to defend them from their enemies and provide them all their needs. This relationship of Jesus as one who cares for you is not going anywhere. That's the idea. He has had a love and an affection for you from eternity. And he's going to have a love and affection for you unto all eternity. He has loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, he has drawn you to himself. And this love he has for you is not going anywhere. He's never going to lose you. He's never going to forget you. He's never going to give up on you. This is part of his very identity. This is his name. He's a father and he rejoices in it. He loves being father to the people he has begotten again. And what does this fatherly affection look like? Well, there's many things we could think about. One example from the Bible that came to my mind this past week was the example of David. Remember David's love for his son Absalom? Even Absalom, who was leading a rebellion and an insurrection against his own father's rule, who tried to turn the entire nation against his father, Absalom was a wicked man. And yet look at how David, the father, mourned his death. You remember it well. We read in 2 Samuel 19 verse 33, And the king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, thus he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, Would God that I had died for thee, O Absalom, my son, my son. 
Really, you can't imagine the kind of love that a father or a mother has for their child. A father, if possible, if needed, is willing to lay down his own life for the life of his child. That's the love of a father. And there's no greater love than that. But now look at your king. Look at this child that is born. This son that is given. Look at Jesus. Because you see, that's exactly the love that he has for us as his children. That's why he became flesh, isn't it? That's why he was born of the Virgin Mary. Because he loved us so much that with a fatherly affection, he came to the earth and he went to the cross and he laid down his own life on behalf of his people. Jesus doesn't just say, I would die for this people. But Jesus, moved by love, comes to the earth and actually does it. And that fatherly disposition Jesus has is a fatherly disposition he has had from eternity and that he will have to eternity. How comforting that must have been to God's people who are living under the rule of the cruel king Ahaz. In a day and age where there was so much cruelty, so much oppression, so much injustice, taking advantage of others, where there was no care for the needy, how comforting and how encouraging to think that you're going to have a king who has this kind of fatherly care and love for you. How comforting for them, how comforting for us. How painful it is when you have earthly fathers who are reflecting that and they love you and then you have to say goodbye to them because they are not an everlasting father to you. They have their time and their day when God calls them home. How painful it is also when you have earthly fathers who don't show you this kind of love that a father ought to show you. How good it is, how good it is to have a father or a father figure who is there for you, ready with counsel, right? To give you good instruction, to be your counselor. And how good it is to have a father or a father figure who is there for you and, and who's mighty, who's got the power to help you in your time of weakness and need. And how good it is to have a father who loves you, who is a faithful reflection of this unchanging love of God. But beloved, that's exactly what you have in Jesus. That is who you have in Jesus. We will never have to say goodbye to Jesus as our father. He is the everlasting father. These are beautiful names, aren't they? Well, as, as I ended the sermon last week, so I want to end it this week, what's the amazing news? The amazing news is this. That, that child that is born to us, that son that is given, is given to us. He's mine. He's yours. We have him by faith. We who, who are believers, 
He's our possession. He who is the mighty God, powerful to save, mighty to crush all his and our enemies, he is your mighty God. Every day of your earthly pilgrimage. And he who is the everlasting Father, who is full of compassion and love and pity and condescension, he is your everlasting Father every day of your earthly pilgrimage. This is what we're rejoicing in this, in this Christmas season. This is the happiness of Christmas. Let us shout for joy at the wonder and fullness of our salvation. And then, let all the glory be given to God. God who dwells in the highest heaven. God who does wonders. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, this good news puts a smile in our hearts. We are blessed indeed, O Lord, knowing Thee and knowing this child that is born, the Son that is given. And this Christmas season has meaning for us, and it is real. All the celebrations and festivities, we know the truth of what is being celebrated. And that child that is born is ours, our King, our mighty God, our everlasting Father. Lord, lay these truths upon our hearts, impress them upon us, that we might walk in the joy and confidence that such people ought to have who have Jesus as their king. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.